Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 377. And my guest this week is Rag and Bone Man. Um, recorded this one a few weeks back and I've been waiting to drop it because I really enjoyed chatting t- to this dude. It's a weird one. Our paths, we've got so many mutual f- friends and whatnot. It's weird that our paths have never crossed over the years. So it was great to j- jump on Zoom and chat. If, um, Thank you all for all the love for last week's two episodes, especially the B. Dolan one. That was a really emotional one, um, as you will have heard. If you missed it, B. Dolan is a rapper that I've toured with loads over the years and just absolutely adore. And at the beginning of this year, he got a phone call um, after a scan, essentially saying, come to the hospital immediately because there's some shit wrong with your spine that we're, that we're surprised that you can currently walk and we need to do immediate surgery and there's a risk of that ending in fucking devastation. Um, yeah, hell of a conversation, hell of a story. If this is your first time tuning in, we've had loads of good guests. In this episode, we talk about K Tempest. Previous guests include Professor Green, uh example i'm trying to think of uk rap and music guys who else who else roots maneuver gets kano wretch mike skinner uh yeah loads of really good people over the years ashley waters there's loads to go and get your teeth into so um drift back into that if it if it appeals um i'm going to keep this intro Brief. Thank you for everyone over at patreon.com slash Pip who joined me for another Zoom hangout uh, last week. We had a really good time. Um, I always say we're going to spend like 30 to 60 minutes and then they end up being 90 minutes to two hours, which is often the way with the podcast, I guess. So you guys are used to it. But yeah, thanks for everyone that came and hung out over there. You can support over there for like a dollar or a dollar 50 or something. And yeah, head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com for all merch all all vinyl dvds things like that if you're a fan of the podcast and you're a regular listener the merch is a really good way to just show your support it's not just some gifted donation you you know you're purchasing something that supports the podcast but you're also getting something physical in exchange for that so yeah i hope you all enjoy this chat i think you will as you'll hear Rag and Bone Man has got a load of new music on the way. Had new music out all, already with some awesome videos, but we talk about all of that stuff. So um, I'll just let the podcast commence. This is episode 377 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Rag and Bone Man. I'm now rolling as well. Right, let's go. Right, I'm joined today by Rag and Bone Man. How you doing, man? I'm all right, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad we're getting this chat. We 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 almost had one lined up. I think it was like three years ago. Yeah, and it and it fell through. So I'm glad that we've been able to to, to make it happen now. But how are you? How are you holding up in these in these unusual times? I'm I'm pretty good now that I've got something to really focus on. Now I've got some music coming out and stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, it feels good. And that makes a big difference, right, having that kind of r- routine and stuff that you have to get done. Like normally when you've got a record out, the bit you maybe enjoy the least is the promo. But <laughs> at a time, time like this, it's like this is gold. This is perfect to go, all right, I, I've got people I can talk to and For real. <laughs> engage with. Yeah, the only weird thing is that like – Usually this time I'm buzzing around all the radio stations and that doing mental like 5am starts and then eight radio stations in France or whatever and then going to the next one and doing it. And I kind of enjoy it. I like I like that experience yeah. of the, the buzz of it and that. But yeah, you know, as it is at the moment, you, we've got to do everything over screens. Yeah, I, I wonder how it's going to change as well. Because I agree, man. I used to enjoy the, particularly the European ones where... You're doing it in person. Yeah. You're going out there for a couple of days and you've got a day of everything in France, a day of everything in Holland. But pandemic aside, Brexit is going to have changed a lot of that going forward, I'd imagine. I'd imagine it will be over Zoom from uh, in future. Yeah, I don't really like to think about it too much. <laughs> it's dark, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Well, with these podcasts, we tend to go all over the place and you've got n- new music I want to talk to you about but you've probably been talking about that an awful lot as well so before we get to that I want to kind of rewind all the way back because we've got a lot of shared kind of acquaintances and histories and it's bizarre our paths have never (laughs) never crossed properly so um I remember hearing you with K Tempest and with Stigger the Dump yeah and all sorts so kind of coming up as a rapper in Brighton I guess how was that because Brighton's always had this kind of half secret dope scene going on like it's always had the battle scene it's had a lot going on there but people always think of of london for for rap i guess because grime was centralized in london whereas brighton had more uk hip-hop it did but yeah london also had the uk hip-hop thing as well you know like stuff yeah. like dark and cold and speaker's corner and all that kind of stuff and yeah yeah um task force and whatnot but um brighton kind of yeah it's always had its own thing going on do you know what i mean when and i think i found that out when i moved to brighton in like probably like 2008 or something and i, and I started going to i started going to slip jam b which is like the, the uh, monthly sort of hip-hop night which sadly isn't anymore but then i just met so many people through it and and so many djs so producers and graph artists and whatnot so just it did feel like a proper little community yeah um which i didn't really feel like anywhere else so um it was it was a good sort of it was a good place to start do you know what i mean where did you grow up then because it feels like that was something of an awakening arriving in somewhere where this where there was this scene i was only from down the road so i like i grew up in a little town called upfield which is just past lewis which is like Literally yeah. only about 15 miles away from Brighton, but I can, uh, an actual fucking world away uh, when it comes to, like, culture and, and music and stuff. Like, there's, when I was a kid, there's nothing going on in terms of, yeah. like, nobody wanted to make, make the same music that I wanted to make. Nobody was into soul music. Some people, I had a few friends that were into hip-hop, but not, right. not, not very many. And, like, the hip-hop that they was into was just, like... I cite 50 Cent or whatever. And I'm like, no, I like 50 Cent, but there's more. (laughs) And um, (laughs) when I moved to Brighton, it was like, I just met everybody that was in the the same shit as me. Yeah, I like that. So so it's it's finding that, because again, you you think at first, oh, I'm into hip hop, I want to find my hip hop heads. 
and then you find out that it's hip hop is as broad a genre as anything, and you could have more connection to, as I said, people who are into soul than people who are into certain areas. Exactly, because those those things are you know there's a direct like people that most people I know that are into hip hop are also into soul music because they're they're either like crate diggers or you know they recognize yeah. the samples and they they know where the music come from and stuff so um meeting like gizmo and that for the first time and and forming like rum committee was my first yeah. kind of intro into like making putting music down in a studio yeah. and and going out and performing it so and and pretty fucking cool at the time as well i never like you know imagine i'll be supporting like Pharaoh munch and then Karis one and we did shows with like slum village and stuff it was it's, it's quite a mad yeah, a mad few years you know with them look i love it i think that's again another thing as well as the club scenes and that brighton has always had that scene of promoters who are going to lure those r- rappers out of just play in london they're going to come out and again as you say just as the first first one to pick up there jumping up and opening for pharaoh munch that's just next level right he's in my opinion one of the all-time the best of the best yeah well, I have things that I do now that, that you know, I've done... I played at, like, Ali Pali, did my own show at Ali Pali, and that's, like... That's yeah. a mega milestone to play, like, 10,000 people in London. But I didn't feel as excited doing that as I did when they were like, oh, we're opening up very much at the Concord too. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> different oh, goals at different times, isn't it? Yeah, or, or, or you've got t- two things there, though, because you're getting the kind of... the seal of approval from someone like Pharaoh, you're getting to get in front of his audience, but then you're also, you're in your ends and, and you, there's going to be a community pride there of, of the crowd. So you're also getting that, you're getting to perform in front of your people. So that's a mad combination. I remember the crowd weren't nowhere near as good as it, 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 it was in Brighton when we played the Brixton show or the Leeds show or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess, did you feel kind of that your l- l- level was raised by being on with these people and by being seeing these people, because like Pharaoh is one that, as soon as he takes the stage, his presence is amazing. But then equally, just his technicality it's different from what you will have maybe have experienced in at, at, at the freestyle contests or whatever else. Just his breath control and everything else is just there's a level of professionalism there. Did that kind of open your eyes to stuff? Yeah, and and a bit yeah about like stuff like stage presence. And um, I also learned that a lot from some of the UK MCs as well. I remember early on seeing people like Maestro and uh, yeah. and Rodney P as well and, and thinking, oh, we're not quite at that level yet because we would always drink bottles of rum on stage and by the end of it, someone's forgetting half their verse or, do you know what I mean? And it was, it was, there's an element of it that wasn't quite taken quite so seriously. But yeah, I just, I remember that 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 quite well or just like realizing that we were we were messing about <laughs> a little bit and uh we need to step our game up yeah it's it's good examples there because rodney p and maestro are people who yeah they have got bags of character but that isn't all it is that's giving them their stage presence there is as you say also a professionalism there is also that t- taking it so seriously that they're gonna go out there and have fun but they've got experience they've done this a million times that they're kind of going right i need to hold this stage yeah yeah, I mean, in the early days, we never done rehearsals or nothing. And, you know, like, just go on stage yeah. blind completely. But it just gave me the buzz, man. It gave me the buzz for being on stage. And that's, like, all I wanted to do. So it was a it was a wicked start to 
you know, before I'd really ever put my own music out, I'd had like three or four years of just doing shows all the time. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think a lot of people don't really get that. By the time I'd started sort of on my solo career, I'd already had a lot under my belt. Well, that was it. That was one of the things that I thought was dope when you blew up was there was instantly that feeling of, of the vibe I got off people I knew around the scene kind of thing was that you'd, you'd paid your dues. Yeah. This wasn't just a kind of out of nowhere. It was a debut, but it wasn't a, oh, this is just some guy that the, the, the PR people are liking, the radio people are liking. So it's going through the roof. It's like, no, that, yeah, the kind of no. It was it was cool for me when I when I first started that kind of journey from making like hip hop with the lads, and then decided to make my own stuff, and then started to write a lot more songs with more consideration and more more of a mind to write like subjects and just and just try and tell stories a little bit more and stuff like that. You know, getting around to those first shows, I remember doing like Scala in London. And packing out Scala without like a record company or nothing, and, and and yeah, man. And I think I signed after that, but being able to do that things, those things independently for a while, and before, to try and make up your mind and stuff like, yeah, it's pretty important having that time. Scala's such an important v- venue, I think, because it does seem to be the one that most people have their first. Oh shit, I'm doing this for real moment. Like, you sell out Scala, and you're like, oh, this is this is legit. It's a it's a buzz there. Yeah, it's a big deal, man. So so just to rewind again, you said this is you know this is what you, as soon as you got on stage in these situations, you knew this is what you wanted to do. How were you as a kid? Or were you always that kind of uh, wanting to perform, or did this this come? I enjoyed you talking on on off the beaten track about kind of being that kid that had tough mates and and, and kind of it was like <laughs> I just I I was such a little jungle head when I was like. 13, 14, that's all I wanted to know and all I wanted to listen to was Jungle. I ever wanted to be a Jungle DJ and an MC and um, yeah. that, that didn't really work out, did it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But so music was always the goal then, regardless of what the genre, it was always, I need to be involved in this. Yeah, we had a, like, I remember having an absolute fever for the music and like, I would do anything I could do to get to the rave to see those people. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, I think I was 15 when I first went to my first drum and bass rave at like the Coronet or somewhere like that. And like, I didn't have any money to go there or nothing. So we like literally begged and still to, to be able to like bunk the train to this place to listen to these DJs. And it was like, it was a, it was a proper passion for it, even though like I wasn't a musician or anything yet. It's like we're we're going to do everything we can to get it because we love it so much. You know what I mean? What what music was pl- was playing around the house when you were growing up? Because again, you do seem to have a good a good history, a good knowledge of music. Did that come from your parents, or was that your own passions kind of exploring from the crate digging days onwards? Oh, I think I like to be honest. My mum and dad had great taste in music, but um, when I was a kid, the music that my mum and dad played, especially my mum, like I really resented going to like see folk music gigs i was like no i really don't want to go and see this i'm like i remember going to like a folk club with my mum and listening to like guns and roses on a tape player while (laughs) while while they're all playing fiddle and that you know what i mean i've got 
We've got like Mr. Brownstone playing where they're all playing like Barons and stuff. So very I didn't, good. I didn't really like think it was that very good at the time. But now I look back on it and think, well, that's that's a, an amazing sort of uh, upbringing, really, because I was introduced to everything from a super early age. I had like jazz and my dad loved blues and rock and roll. I listened to loads of the Beatles and the Stones, and then Mama listened to like loads of really cool psychedelic folk music and stuff and I sort of listen to Anna I think it's amazing and that's why when Ruben's around I'm always like picking up records and showing them to him I'm like you know if you, do you want to play it you know put it on the record player or I you know yeah. he know he knows how to use Alexa now as well <laughs> which is amazing mad. for a three-year-old he's like yeah, he he knows how to use it, so he'll he'll like he only knows a couple of songs, but he'll get he'll get Alexa to play the music for him, which is quite funny. Just just as long as you can hold off on him learning how to make Alexa do f- fart noises, because my goddaughter's learnt that, and it's just it's next level. It goes on and on. Oh, th- this that's Ben, man. He was doing that like a while back, and he he he, <laughs> he did it. He wore himself out with the fart noises. He is, he he realised he could say Alexa, do a dinosaur fart. And it would do this yeah. really loud one, and it was hilarious to him. So it was about a couple of weeks <laughs> of fart noises constantly. And then the mad world of like YouTube, and somehow I come in and he's somehow got the controller and, and started listening to a song on YouTube called The Flying Bum or something. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't think you should be watching that, mate. <laughs> Is it is it has it given you any ideas or tempted you to cross over to into any songs that kids are going to play on YouTube constantly and get tens of millions of views? I mean, the, the dosh would be nice, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> no, sure I could. I'm not sure I could do that. <laughs> I mean, well, speaking of, of of parenthood, then yeah, usually with a record, you'd be gearing up now, as you said, to be doing press in Europe, to be touring, to be being on the road. Is that kind of a silver lining in this that you're getting to do all of this and then go back to the family and be at home, particularly at an age when, when it's such a, a wonderful age to be around a youngster. I think the silver lining's withering slightly now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's faded slightly. It's gone a bit grey. Yeah, yeah, it's no longer silver. But it it really was like, I think I was bang in the middle of recording the record in Nashville when the pandemic hit. We'd gone out there for, we had three weeks booked to record the whole record. Me and my band were out there, some musicians from, from Nashville, and we were all meant to get in and record the album. We had two weeks where we had to spend in like total isolation and then had a, and then just had one week to record the whole album completely oh, live. Wow. So, so we did, we were like, right, we're going to just set up as a band and just record the whole record live as a band. And then anything needs to be added afterwards, we'll do it afterwards. And, and really, we didn't add much afterwards, so it was the perfect scenario. But then I was like, oh, now we've got to go home. And uh, and when I got home, everyone, no one can go out and stuff. But then I just had that time with my son. So I had like a, a really great summer of being with my boy outside. It was a really nice summer, so we had loads of nice weather just just knocking about in the garden or somewhere and, and it was it was wicked like you know yeah. so so i kind of feel bad saying it but because i know there's a lot of people in shitty situations but of course i i moved out to the middle of nowhere for for a good reason because i don't really like going out anyway so um yeah <laughs> it's it's uh yeah it was it was it was actual blessing for me because i i in like the time that he's been alive I've never had like a full summer with him because 
I've just literally been on the road constantly. It's because festival, yeah. festivals are my, like my biggest thing. So, you know, for since 2016, we were doing like 50 festivals a year. And like, I was, yeah, I, was I was home, like barely at home at all. So yeah, it, it, it was pretty cool. I love that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's good to have that bit of space and be a bit out as well, because you didn't have to worry about the people swarming on Brighton and stuff like like that in the summer. You get to go, nah, you go ahead and do what you're doing. We're over here uh-huh. playing in the garden. Yeah, and he's at that age as well. Like, he's free, so he's not at school yet. And um, he does go to this little nursery and that, but we just knocked about here and had fun and I bought a bouncy castle because I could. <laughs> and uh, put it up in the garden. And then we built, like, some mad water slide that was like 50 meters long down right down our garden in, that went into the uh bouncy castle at the end it was it's a madness so uh, yeah, it's it a good summer man <laughs> but yeah it's perfect now it's a bit peak because yeah i'm like right the album's coming out i've got a new song out let's get on the road shall we and no, yeah we can't, so. the- the water slide is frozen over. <laughs> yeah. Um, the water slide's frozen <laughs> and the silver lining's perished. <laughs> how, how was that in, in Nashville then? Because the songs I've heard of the record, I was going to say that it's got that Nashville vibe of when they would just get in the studio and record it as a band rather than more of the UK vibe or maybe LA vibe where it's all quite separate, all layers, all tracks. It feels like you've got in there and gone like, let's make a record and it's even more fascinating to know you only had a week to get it all nailed down you were planning three weeks and it turned into a week i think we um when me and ben went over to nashville to sort of finish writing the record a few months before that we got to the point where all the songs were done and we'd pretty much written all the songs just on like an acoustic guitar around the table and with no production whatsoever so we had this bunch of songs and, you know, the beauty of that was we got to live with those songs in that, like, just recorded on a phone format for ages. So I was allowed to kind of think about what we were going to do with them. And then it was talked about going back and working with Mike on them in, in Nashville. And we were like, I spoke to Mike and I was like, listen, I want this. I really want distinctive drums in this record. And I was like, there's so much music out there at the moment that doesn't have any of that and this has just doesn't have warmth and i really want this record to feel like that and i also want it to feel like when people listen to it they feel like they're in a room with us um because you know other than kind of band music anything else i've heard doesn't feel like that and you know you can't be you can't think that and then make something that's just goes along with the the norm like you have to kind of it sounds a bit cunty but sort of be that sort of change and and think, oh, well, I want to hear more live stuff on the radio, but I'm going to make a, a record with just it's kind of stock drum loops and stuff on it, you know? Yeah. So we sort of commandeered a b- bunch of musicians. I took my bass player, Bill, from Bristol, my friend Ben, who wrote the songs with us, and then Daru Jones on the drums, who, if people know drums, like Daru's just amazing. Yeah. You know, he plays yeah. with Jack White, and but plays with all the Pete Rock and has been in like Primo's band and stuff. So, you know, he's the guy. And and then Wendy from um, Prince of the Revolution, who played guitar on the record. Just just a wicked bunch of people to to sit and play the record with. You know. Yeah, man. That's I'm... why it sounds the way it does because you know it was all live. Yeah, that makes bags of sense as well. Because if you want that kind of in the room feel, 
the only problem with that at times is losing something from the drums. But someone like Daru has got such tightness, such crisp drums that you can have that in the room and still feel you're near to what you were with the more pop sounding thing. Yeah, I mean he's he's a he's a he's a rock and roll drummer, but has uh, yeah. a very much like a hip hop background as well. So yeah. he's yeah he 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 was really you know that element of the record that that had to be right and. You know, when you when I listen to it, I, it makes me really happy that everything just has this particular sort of sound and and uh, and a feel to it. So yeah, man, I don't want to psychoanalyze on on one conversation, but but you spoke about your mum taking you to folk gigs back in the day. That is the community sound that you're going for. That feeling of being in the room that that will be having grown up in that situation will be why you noticed that that is missing from a lot of pop music, that that it feels so about we are all watching the person rather than we are part of the the, the music as such in the room. Yeah, and um, like I've, I've got a lot of influence from not sort of direct sound influence and not like lyrical influence, but, but as a whole sort of sound and as a sonic and stuff, listening to a lot of 70s bands um, yeah. and... I remember listening to like Beach Boys and the Eagles and stuff and just like just trying to listen intently to like certain sounds and thinking, how does that how does that sit in the mix like that? Or, you know, their vocals sound so warm and beautiful listening to like Radiohead in the nineties and stuff and thinking, Wow, like why doesn't music sound like this so much anymore? Like, you know, I don't wanna see sound like a grumpy old <laughs> music fan like, oh it doesn't <laughs> sound like the old days. But um it 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 doesn't, and like I was saying, I'm, I'm, I miss that live element in pop music. So, um, and I don't, you know, it's like I do make pop music. I like pop music, yeah. but I also want it to sound interesting. Yeah, completely. Well, speaking of sounding interesting and of 70s stuff, how good are you at knowing when enough is enough? Like you were saying, you started with these tracks as just kind of acoustic around a table, and then you add stuff. And the 70s was the master of adding stuff, and then they went too far and every song was had too much in there <laughs> too much on it and then we got the 80s where it's just a drum machine but like my favorite track on the new a record was was anywhere away from here yeah because it felt like it had that restraint on just going right yeah that's enough obviously you've obviously you've added but you, it's almost like you've gone that was kind of perfect with just us around the table like we don't want to overdo this and add too much stuff because we're in the studio and because we're in nashville and we've got these amazing musicians you know I mean, yeah, we could have added loads and loads of like backing vocals and strings and all yeah. this kind of stuff, but I think it had to sound organic and and like that particular record, the the way you hear it is pretty much the way it was it was recorded on the day. You know, there's barely yeah. anything added to it. And one of the things I have a slight regrets of is when I did my last album, I was I was slightly green around the ears about the sound of certain things and you know the the ability of um people to change stuff and then it just go out and and you don't even notice the change and then i've heard stuff yeah. of mine on the radio and i'm like hold on a minute they've put auto tune on my vocal in that in that bit they've just auto tuned it to to pitch it slightly yeah. or whatever and i'm like i never i didn't notice those things because i wasn't you know i wasn't really a producer then I'm not a, a a very good producer now, but I am. Uh, <laughs> I do I do produce stuff, but so I understand how that all that stuff works works now. I've taught myself, and 
So this time I was like really particular about, look, I don't want to keep going over like vocals and, you know, take snippets out and then put snippets of this back in to make it sort of like sit perfect or whatever. I'm like, let's just do loads of takes and then pick the best take and, yeah, and have it all as one take. So all the songs on the record are just one take vocals. There's no like, oh, let's splice that bit in. Because for me, I just wanted it to have character. You know, I think when you start doing that, you start to lose character. Yeah, I completely agree. Do you think the kind of that explosive rise has been a steep learning curve then? Because you did kind of, again, get 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 big. Obviously, as we've said, you'd been doing it a while, but you'd kind of changed from rap to 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 singing really so and it it blew up so do you think it was kind of important to have those things that you overlooked to make you know to be more vigilant now yeah i mean you know high science and motherfucker really. you do you i listen to my that that human album i think i'm i've done half of it different than i would have done now but then would it have been as successful so yeah yeah yeah, uh, it's, yeah. it's catch 22 so I, I don't i don't listen to it and feel any sort of um you know i'm not annoyed about it at all like I just, yeah. I just, it just, it's just a learn. Everything's a learning curve, isn't it? You're like, you know, you get better with each thing you do, hopefully. And uh, I feel like this record is a massive progression from the last, and then hopefully the next one will be. But um, it was just important that I got to do something. I wanted to make an album that people didn't feel like they've heard it before. Like it wasn't, it didn't sound like anything on the last record. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't like nobody needs to hear the same record twice. No, I completely f- feel you. I think there can be pressure to fall into that. I also think I've said it a few times on here, but it's fascinating when you're a music fan because you think that when an album is finished recording and released, it's finished. And when you become a musician, you realize you're about two tours after the album release when the songs are finished. And then I said, I've had that with stuff where I go back and listen and go, Oh, is that how that song goes? That's that's not how that song goes. I've toured it live now. I know how it goes. Yeah, exactly. And and also when you like like us as a band, we don't play anything exactly the same as the record. Like we yeah. don't play to a click. We don't have any playback or anything like that. It's just we learn the songs and we change them as we go. It's like, you know, someone looks at someone and goes, Should we have a break here? And someone does a solo or whatever. It's like it change it evolves and it changes on the road. And then by the time you played it a million times, if you listen back to the original, you're like, Are you sure? That's that's not what that's meant to sound like. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it it changes. Completely. So so how was it when human blew up like that then? Because that got huge, like pretty swiftly. It's quite hard to to say exactly because I, I it was so busy. And such a mental time that, like, you don't really get to sit down and go, what, what have I been doing? You just, you know, someone's like, no, we've got to get up and do something else. Oh, tomorrow yeah, you're yeah. in somewhere else. And, you know, like, which is great. At the time, you're tr- I get I got to travel the world, like, on my first album. I got to go to, like, New Zealand and play to thousands of people in the other side of the world because of, like, two songs. Yeah. That I, I mean, I look back in that and think, well, I, I always wanted to travel, and then my my favorite thing to do, <laughs> music, has taken me to those places. So, like, yeah. I feel lucky and grateful as well. Like, you know, because let's not like there's certain element of this of the music business is is luck. You know, you can have the the, you know, you can be the most talented guy on the street, but if you're not at the right place at the right time, or you make the music that people 
sort of connect to at the right time, then, yeah, you, you know, you, you, there must be thousands of people out there that have made amazing music, but it's never quite got over the over the threshold because it wasn't the right time or whatever. Yeah, you didn't have the luck. <laughs> yeah, completely. It, click, it it clicks at the right time, but then equally, you've got to acknowledge that the experience and the time you'd put in leading up to that is what allowed you to capitalize on that luck. Do you know what I mean? It allowed you to go, no, we can play live and we can, we've got more. This isn't just, here's the one song. I know I've watched a Lewis Capaldi have to deal with that. Cause, cause that, 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 that one tune is a fucking banger. And there must've been so much pressure to have more because it was particularly with him. It was, here's w- w- one song that is taking you around the world. Yeah. Now, have you got anything else? It's pretty much the same with me. Like, I mean, Human was the biggest song definitely in the UK. And and yeah. luckily like the second song kind of took off as well in Europe and a bit in Australia and stuff. And that, and that kind of took me over to different places so yeah, I mean, I I still like, I not, I have that in my head that I'm gonna have to play that song for the rest of my life, and I don't care, I don't mind, and I'll do it over and over again. It might be boring for me, but you know that's uh, that's that song's my bread and butter. <laughs> I was I was going to ask what your relationship is with the song because outside of music, as a fan, you will have had those songs that come out and you're like, this song's fucking amazing, and then in a month you're like. I don't want to hear this song anymore. I've heard it so much. It's played out. And like easy example for me is Adele. I'm the biggest Adele fan from gigging together in front of 50 people to watching her in front of 100,000. But almost every song of hers comes out and I'm like, she's done it again. It's genius. And then a month yeah. later, I'm like, turn this off. I cannot hear it anymore. <laughs> How is that as it's one of your songs going through that, I guess? I remember at points my mate ringing me up and he's he was in like um I think he was in Melbourne and he's like on on site as a he's a contractor and he's like I've had enough of your music <laughs> this last week can you tell him to stop fucking playing it because it's doing my nutty and he's like every every time I turn it over you're on the radio and I turn it onto another one and you're on that fucking station and like yeah there was part of me that thinks oh I'm a bit cringed out by it I kind of want to I don't know but um yeah it's not really my fault. <laughs> Nah, nah. It's again. It's no bad thing, right? At, at the end of the day, and if you listen to commercial radio, I mean, you kind of have yeah. to expect that you're going to hear the same songs over and over again. If you're yeah. like me and you don't really like that, so listen to something else, six six music or whatever, and then you you might get a bit more variety. So, how attuned to that side of the business have you had to become? Because it's a weird one. It can become a, an obsession, like. It's it 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 must be a buzz that that all you ever wanted has been has been playlisted straight away. That's a good thing. It's going down well, but it's a weird thing that you don't know about until you're in the industry that you can become obsessed over this. Oh, that single hasn't been playlisted, or that's been B listed, or whatever else. How's that been for you as an artist and obviously as a, a, a human? I guess I'll be really honest. I completely cut myself away from that side of things. Like I get told it, but it sort of goes like over the back of my head and, and I'm like you know just someone from the label tell me it's doing all right and that oh that's enough <laughs> you know and then you, now and again you, someone will be like oh it's number such and such in the charts or whatever and you're like that's really great but I don't I don't want constant updates about <laughs> the position of it or how many it's sold and mm. stuff it's like it's not you know, as long as I recoup my record I'll be all right yeah exactly so did I mean it, this is now 
I'm trying to avoid um, a, a, a punny sentence, but w- was it all you ever wanted? When when that <laughs> blew up, how, how was that? Because it is that weird thing. That is what you're, particularly when you're in the hip-hop scene, you're, the, the, the idols in hip-hop are often global. They've got everything. They're the biggest in the world. You, got, you, you drop that single and it's got to have been bigger than you were expecting, but did it d- deliver for you artistically, emotionally, personally? How was that? It did because it didn't feel like anything else that was on on about and on the radio at the time of it. And, yeah. and like, I wasn't trying to copy anyone and there, there certainly wasn't that many people that sounded like me at the time. And obviously that was part of the reason that people gravitated towards it. And there was a certain amount of my old fans that were like, "Oh, this this isn't this doesn't have a boom bap beat, or, <laughs> or you're not to sign to High Focus Records anymore." Um, yeah. Because there there's always going to be people that like a particular point in your career, and then they're like, "We want you to make that kind of music again." Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's people that I know yeah. come up to me and go, "Oh, I wish you'd just make acoustic blues music," or "I wish you'd still make songs with Leaf Dog." And then it's like, you can't be what everyone else wants you to be. I like pop music. So I think think there are definitely those fans out there that were fans of like the stuff I did on High Focus that were like, oh, he's sort of making pop music, but people can't get their head around that you like, I don't know, you like Mad Lib and you also like Cyndi Lauper songs or like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? So Yeah, I know it well, mate. I know it well. That was a bit of a weird one. It's like... I've had people come out to me at shows about, yeah, what, what, why do you make like pop music and that now? It's like, well, I, I like pop music. I don't, you know, just because you don't, it doesn't mean it's not good. Yeah, I completely agree. I always re- remember Dan Lesac being a proper spun out on one of our tours because for the whole tour, all I listened to on loop was the best of Cindy Lauper because it's a fucking great best of. It's 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 flawless, and 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 trying to take elements from Cindy Lauper and from Prince into an electro rap performance it's like i'm gonna get there i'm gonna find it i love that though so do you miss anything from those more grimy touring days because again the positives of these touring days is as you say ten thousand people this amazing thing but the old touring days again i know the uk kind of scene at that point you would get like one random gig out in amsterdam or some some random europe thing that you and one other rapper have got a train to and it's this it's this adventure. It doesn't feel like a business. It feels like an adventure. Yeah, for real. Like I don't was I wouldn't say I miss it, but I have really fond memories of it. Especially yeah. like going out with some of the high focus boys to like France or Austria or somewhere like that and doing like these one off shows and then and then touring with Stig as well. Me and Stig did like did maybe like a year or year and a half of like solid touring around Europe and stuff. And that was a lot of fun, man. Like I kind of learned quite a lot from Stig at the time. I was I basically just hype man, but did a couple of my own tunes on the tour. And my first yeah. experience of like touring Europe and stuff and going out to Switzerland and and um, it was a lot of fun, man. Just being with your mates in it and it didn't feel too serious and it was definitely was not for the money. <laughs> it was like, yeah, <laughs> you've got 200 pounds and you've got to pay for your own flight. But then the beauty as well is it would always feel that the, from the promotion side, it wasn't about the money either. You'd get these promoters who have just got this community of heads that love this and no one, whereas when you get big, everyone's getting their cut. It's a business choice. Whereas with them, it's like, no, we want to make this event happen. Yeah, you had them shows in weird little places in the UK, like, uh, oh, you're playing tonight in a pub in Cambridge. Or like, 
this is some tiny little venue in Herefordshire. And, yeah. and, you know, on paper, those gigs shouldn't really happen because there's no money to be made. But people just wanted to have a good time. And there's a small community of people that love that music. So that's a, it was a, it's a beautiful thing, man, to be honest. Yeah, I've got proper fond memories of that time. I love it. I love it. Well, um, can we talk about who your who your influences are at the moment? Because I think it's always an interesting thing around the time of a record because you'll have your general influences that will always sh- shine through somewhere, whether you know it or not. Or not. I loved when when Thou Shall Always Kill came out that people, that punk fans were saying it feels like a punk record. I'm like, I don't know how you've got that, but I grew up loving punk. So that has come through without me realising. So there's those long-time influences, I guess, but then there's also the one that's around a new record, the ones that are going to have made that more top-level um, influence. I think, um, yeah, you're right. You're like, there's, there's always a, the influences, the strong ones from that you've listened to your whole life. Like mine will always be Otis Redding and Al yeah. Green and and, um, and and just sort of big soul singers and stuff. But like, I remember probably in the 90s, when I was going to school, like listening to a lot more, a lot more bands at the time. And I was a big Oasis fan. I listened to a lot of Oasis and the Verve. And then I got into the Smiths. I was, I was, I listened to the Smiths all the time. And I think when I was started to make this record, I started very much on a right. I'm going to make like a Neo soul kind of hip hop vibe record. And then I made a few tunes in that vein and listened back to like five or six of them was like, I don't know. It's not really working. It just feels like I'm going over old ground. It feels like I'm pushing the envelope. Um, I need to kind of go away and rethink it a little bit. And just spent a bit of time away from the studio and just remembered like all of the great bands and singer-songwriters I love. And I started listening to loads of Paul Simon. I started listening to the Beach Boys, Eagles, like ELO. Loads of like Black Sabbath. That's not really... It, like a direct influence but they're just fucking yeah. rad um and then that started to sort of change the way i wanted to make this record and um the way yeah. i started writing songs and then the nashville kind of thing came into like we started writing songs with people over there so that was a totally different feel altogether and it just felt like i was starting to create this kind of guitar record almost and that's what it's going to be and um i was really happy about that because i'd found a really like comfortable place it's kind of yeah out of my comfort zone but comfortable at the same time and uh it was just the most the most enjoyable experience of making a record i've ever had i think just Mm. for just through having the two most important things just like nobody nobody in your ear to tell you like this is what you should be making and also the time to make what you want and then the right people to make it with like I had my keys by Ben is like he's like my confidant and he, he he knew exactly what type of record I wanted to make, exactly what I wanted to talk about. So he is like the perfect person to have as sort of my right hand yeah. man throughout the whole album. You know, T- time sounds like a key part there because it it is the songs I've heard. It feels like and it, what you've said there makes sense because it feels like on the songwriting period of the record there was influence of these huge huge sounds huge produced records like paul simon elo really produced these big sounding huge things but then when it comes to the recording period of it you've taken it down you've scaled it down you've you've 
got it in a studio. So you've got these big songs, but it's not kind of overproduced and overpolished and kind of sounding too much, which uh, if you're Paul Simon or something like that, at that period, it's perfect. Whereas now we can polish things to a degree that it can ruin it. Like, like t- t- technology has got to that point where it can be too too polished. So it feels perfect that that was the influence in the songwriting process. And then by the time the recording process, it was almost a different influence. So you're, you're, you're crossing these over. I think like also I was, I was, I was saying some really personal stuff in the record. You know, I, I talk about things that are, um, I was like super honest on this record and talk, talking about things that are sometimes a bit difficult and I proper like laid it on the plate a little bit, maybe a bit too much, but, but in that sense, like, I don't didn't want the music to be too much that you just didn't hear the story behind it. And sometimes yeah. I think it's, 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 it's the tendency in people to just go more and more and more and more. And then the song just gets sucked out of it. And, and just, you know, you end up getting a really great vibe, but you don't hear the song so much. And, and that's, yeah. that's, I think that was the influence in Nashville was where with, with country music, especially it's all about hearing the lyrics and it's about people yeah. getting what the song's about and understanding the emotion behind it and stuff. So, yeah, that amalgamation of things together, I think, is, um, has made it a, a really good record. Well, I think it's a good record. I let other people yeah. decide. Completely. Just, I mean, going off on a, on a tangent now, but speaking of Nashville and, and stories and, and lyrics, did you see that? Dolly Parton interview recently where she revealed she wrote I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the same day. Bro, that is ridiculous. That's so ridiculous, isn't it, to hear that? It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Just the stories there, the personalness, you get go, oh, let's, oh, we've got time for another one. Let's churn this out. Yes, Yeah, but that is the Nashville way. They love it. So I'm not, yeah. su- I'm not surprised at those things, but it is mad when you think about those, those two songs in one day. Shit. Mad, isn't it? What, do, do you think the honesty and openness on this record, do you think it's influenced by your change in exposure, I guess? Because you did, you do all of a sudden have eyes on you. So was there an element of, well, if these dickheads in the papers are going to try and, and tell my stories, I'm going to tell my fucking stories. I'll, I'll say it from my mouth and get that honesty in there and that openness. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think just this time around, I wasn't scared of being honest. I was like... I don't care, man. You know, like the part of I spent I spent a lot of time by myself writing this record. Like, you know, not writing whole songs, but just spending time by myself. And and your mind goes a bit crazy sometimes. You know, they say like you you, you really get to know yourself when you're alone. Um, yeah. And sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But you know, <laughs> certain, certain things come out when you're by yourself. And and, and I got to the point where I was. Um, I was writing a lot at like two or three in the morning. I would just jot down a sentence or it would just be a thought or a sentence. And then I would be out in Nashville and we got a certain vibe and I was like, well, I've got, I've got that. And what does that say to you or whatever? And, what, and how can we elaborate on, on what I've written? So yeah, I was just, it, all of these songs came from like a really honest feeling. So that's sort of why I called it life by misadventure. Cause I thought it almost, tells like a, a bit of a story of past, present and future. And a lot of it's about my sort of worries about the future and, and what kind of world I've brought my son into and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's honest in that, in that respect. And I mean, that's really the only way I know how to write anyway. I'm like, I'm not really like a super introspective songwriter and I'm not trying to make you dig for it. I'm just, uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's on dinner plate. So 
Or, or how have you found that then? Because you said earlier about not being someone who wants to go out and party much these days anyway. How have you found that kind of new exposure that came hand in hand with the great success? Because you strike me as someone who 100% strives for success, 100% strives for excellence, but not necessarily ever strived for fame. But that's something that you get. And in this day and age, that means tabloids trying to be all over your relationships, your family, kids, anything like that. How have you found that? That bit was, it was a bit difficult when it came around. I mean, I've been pretty good about separating those two worlds. Mm. Like when I come home, that's a real, like, I'm not at work anymore. I'm just, I'm just Ruben's dad. And, you know, I, I, I don't really mix the two up too much, but you know, now and again, something will happen. And, you know, I, I, I've realized that I've said something to someone and then that's ended up in a newspaper. Yeah. So it, it's a bit difficult in, in a way that like, I'm quite a trusting person and I've had to be, I've had to, as I've got older, become less trusting. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. I don't really like that too much. You know, I've had to sort of be wary about who my friends are and stuff. And that's not something I ever wanted to do, but yeah, ultimately like people are sometimes bastards. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, and I have, I have to keep like a, I keep like my, my best mates around me and I live near my family and stuff. So I don't go to those parties and stuff. And I, I don't really get seen by the, by the paps outside some flashy nightclub or whatever. It's like, yeah. you know, if I, I do party, but if I do, it's, it's out of the yard or whatever. Oh, oh, oh how important has, has Brighton been to you then? Cause I think having a creative scene or having people around you that inspire you and fire you up even on those early days of rap how key has that been to your development and and to as a as a person as much as an artist i think it's key to me now because all of the people that i have have made music with for the last like 10 years um are still my my good friends and they're they're the people that i can trust and and um you know when we all get together, it's still like, it still feels like the old days and stuff, uh, which is beautiful, really. And not everyone sort of makes music anymore. So it's just like, usually just like, let's get together and have a beer or whatever. But yeah, definitely. Like, like not it's not so much the place, but the people in it, really. Um, I learned a lot from everyone that I met along the way and stuff. And, and well, people like Gizmo and then definitely Tom Hines from, that used to do Slip Jam, you know, be, just give those little nuggets of like confidence given to you over the years. And yeah. like, remember yeah. the, the first time stepping on the stage there and being told to like hold my head up and not, you know, not be like afraid of the audience and stuff. And then like, some being like, yo, you, your voice is fucking dope. You should, you should, you know, let people know that kind of thing. So, you know, it's, it's you know, I love the place and that, but it's more the people in it. I love that. Well, to kind of wrap things up, what is ahead? Obviously, the, the album is looking ahead a lot on a grand scale, but I guess before that, how are you feeling about releasing a record in these weird times? Um, touring being a question mark, the kind of having to have a dilemma of if you're going to do any kind of online shows or whatever, which can work, but can also be a fucking nightmare, can be just so soulless and nothing there. So, yeah, like, like what's your outlook on all that? I don't like the idea of the doing like online shows if I'm honest. Yeah. I'm kind of like 
I've done I've done kind of one so far that was more like to present like the, the music that I've been making to the rest of the label kind of worldwide and there was no other way of doing it so we had to stand in front of this camera with a screen there and stuff and then play our music but no one was talking and there was no feedback or anything so between every song I just sort of stood and it was almost like I felt like I was back at the pub playing to like five people and I'm like oh do do they they like it or do they not like it so it's a bit weird and uh I don't really feel like I want to be back in that position again but um I think you know if it if it comes to it maybe I'll try one I don't know man I'm just I, I just hope that by like the end of the summer we're going to be able to tour again I reckon we will you know I feel kind of positive about it yeah it's just going to take a little while in it so you know, maybe, maybe maybe by the time you can tour again, I've I might be on my third album. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've, I've got this theory right that the only way for online gigs to work is is like one song a night. Like you're just doing one song because it's the gaps in between. Do you remember when when years ago on uh, on Jules Holland, Paul McCartney had been on. He had a full band. It was amazing. He's doing his Paul McCartney thing. His thumbs are up. It's wicked. Yeah. Um, and then. They just pan over, and Adele is just sat with a guitar on a stool and a spotlight and a mic, and that's it. And yeah. he stole the show from everything. That's the only way I can see online shows working. Is here's one song stripped down in this beautiful situation, and that's all you get. You don't have that. Well, this is the point. There should be applause. I now have to wait before I start the next song. Just w- one song. I'll see you again tomorrow. A song a night, or something like that. I also feel weird about charging people for it. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. how. I'm not sure how I feel about it because I'm. I'm not sure I would pay to watch someone perform online. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. So yeah. M- maybe you're right. Maybe that's a. Maybe that is a way of doing it. You know, pay a quid for a song. I <laughs> do you one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All come along. I'll do me one song and then I'll I'll go back to my living room. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> well, I mean, on on the grander scale, then how how are you feeling about? where we are in the world because again you're right it is a weird time to bring a child up and to have a child in the world there's a lot to feel negative about i swear it feels i swear about five six years ago it felt like we were going in the right direction things were far from perfect but but, but i could see well it was worse 30 years ago it was worse 20 years ago we seem to be at a point now where that that isn't so clear (laughs) do you know what i mean it's like now things feel quite bad at the moment they do they do and i but I kind of, I feel like when you've got children, maybe not so much when you've got older children, but now Ruben's only three years old. So I don't have any, like, there's no questions about what's going on from him. It's like, mm-hmm. he just wants to know when you can have cake next or yeah. when am I going Big to, questions. yeah, am I going to nursery today or can I put my welly boots on and can we splash in puddles? Um, you know, Perfect. is it is it all right if I pull on your beard? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, can I come and sit and watch cartoons in your room? So, like, there's not. I I just I feel like I'm a bit away from it. If I'm honest, I feel like I I live yeah. I live in a bit of a bubble, and I don't know I don't know if that's selfish of me or not. But I I just try not to think about it too much because I guess I'm like I feel positive about like hopefully everything will be all right and. And maybe that's a bit of a blase attitude towards to have towards it, but yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> no, I feel you, man. I think it can be incredibly important to 
to be bold enough to take that stance, if you know what I mean, to realise that there's a lot that you can't influence, no matter how many angry t- tweets you send or whatever else you can't influence. So you need to go, well, what's, how can I, like I always say it's it's nearly impossible to, to change the world, but you can change your world every day in loads of little ways, in loads of really good ways. And that's that should hopefully then contribute to everything else. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's people out there that need help. And if someone asks me to be a part of that and and help out in any way, I'm going to do that. But I'm, yeah. also, I'm also taking myself away from the world a little bit, you know, where I live and what I do. And I just I feel like I live in a bubble and, and that's all right with me at the moment, to be honest. I feel, yeah, I love that. Well, I appreciate you allowing me into your bubble for an hour of your time, man. <laughs> this has been a pleasure. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man. Thank you very much. I'm going to press stop now. I'll stop. Oh, yeah, I'll press stop mine as well. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 377. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, as I always say, it's always weird when it's someone you don't know or haven't chatted to before because you never know how chatty they're going to be. But I feel we really found some good avenues to wander down. So, um, yeah, that was good fun. Shall I t- t- tell you next week's guest? Yeah, I may as well. It's John Sim next week. I had a great chat with John Sim. Um, so that'll be out next week. And until then, stay safe and stay as sane as humanly possible. Ta-ta.